All right, welcome back to the EI Podcast for the inaugural episode, Who Are We? With brothers Kyle and Kerry Eastridge. Now of Eastridge Investigations, and uh, we're going to go ahead and bring in Kyle. I am Brian. I am doing the engineering and hosting for this week's episode. Hopefully, you've uh, already subscribed on uh, Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, you know, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Let's bring Kyle in. And welcome on to your own podcast, Kyle. Let's uh, let's take a few minutes and talk about who you are, and what you do, and what is EI. Well, who I am is Kyle Eastridge, your uncle. <laughs> but uh, I uh, I got on the police department in 1985. The Reagan admin. Yeah, and gas prices I think were about a buck ten a gallon. <laughs> I can't think of it, the significant incidents in that time frame. I know I remember the, the Marine barracks in Lebanon had been bombed, right? That was 83. Okay. 85, we had the Challenger shuttle disaster. That's Yeah, I do yeah. recall that. So just to give a time reference for when I I got involved in things, and I, I had the normal police career, patrol, you know, surveillance uh, opportunities through uh, a unit called the FAST unit and uh, ultimately went to investigations and ended up in the assault unit and then the homicide unit and then the cold case homicide unit. Back in the bus up just a bit, uh, you know, domestic violence is a very hot button topic. And I seem to recall that you and another individual kind of launched the domestic violence investigations unit back in what about 93? Uh, yeah, I'd been right in 94, I think, but uh, it, it was actually um, a unit that was created out of the assault unit, and it was right around the O.J. Simpson trial era, and, we, and I was a founding member. I didn't create it, but me and a couple other detectives were founding members in that unit. Plank holders. Plank holding members. Yeah, I was telling right. somebody, a, a friend of mine recently, decided to get out of a police car and went to the DV unit. And they had uh, the city, which we served, has its own building for domestic violence. No uh, kidding. Yeah. Yeah, they have their own, uh, like, advocacy center where the detectives work and civilians work and partnerships with all these organizations to help battered women and the occasional battered man. Had a conversation, said, yeah, my, my uncle was one of the plank members of that unit. And... Uh, when he told me their caseload, it was just unbelievable. It's so. ridiculous. But you, you also got to consider that, I don't know the stats on it, but Gary knows if you do any time in homicide, that's going to be your probably your predominant homicide you're going to work. Of course, they they resolve quickly. There's no whodunit element to it, so... Unfortunately, hanging out with you all has made me very jaded when I watch a murder mystery on Netflix or any other network because I yeah. go, yeah, the boyfriend did it. Thanks. Moving on. Yeah, I don't need to watch parts three, four, and five. The shows just piss me off because, <laughs> you know, if you're from our background, all you're doing is saying forensics doesn't work that way. You can't make people talk to you like that. You know, all that crap. You get uh, to the point where you quit being invited to go to movies or watch right. series right. because you pick them apart. Uh, well, guns, the, too. The accuracy. Oh. Guns will absolutely ruin a movie for me if they're uh, uh, 
if they're shown being handled wrong. A voice from the center. Let's talk about who you are. Well, I just kind of threw myself in there. You did. I? You just interjected. That's I'm, okay. I'm Gary Eastridge. Uh, I, I joined the Oklahoma City Police Department in 1979, a little, just a few years before Kyle did. I think my motivation for wanting to be in law enforcement can go back into the uh, late 50s, early 60s. I was born in 57. Our father uh, rode a 1959 Harley Davidson uh, dual glide. It was black and white, uh, and one of his quirks was that uh, being the father of four young children, if he saw someone speeding through the neighborhood, he became the uh, self-appointed motor jock. He would fire up the kickstart Harley and chase them down. He'd give them an ear feel. <laughs> give them an earful. It's amazing he didn't get uh, beat or shot or stabbed. We, because, different times. Because we, we lived in a little bit of a rough area. Right. We Well, we have a word for those people now. I think they call him a Karen. Yeah. I think they, right. Yeah. A well, Karen. he, he yeah. was an original Karen. Yeah, OG Karen. But I, I joined, uh, I started the academy in February of 1979. I did about uh, just short of 22 years with the Oklahoma City Police Department. Retired there in 2000 uh, out of the homicide unit. That's where Kyle and I's careers are, are somewhat similar. I did 11 years in, uh, in patrol and then 11 years in investigations. The old FAST unit that he talks about, uh, I went in there and about, about the time Kyle was in the academy, I... Uh, I spent, I think they were six-month rotation yeah, and ended up with a six-month extension uh, working for one of my personal heroes, Julie Smith. Yeah, mine Julie, too. Julie was the sergeant in that unit and uh, somebody I, to this day, still look up to. Yeah, she's outstanding. Um, you say fast. And one of the things that I find challenging with podcasts, especially when I'm on other people's uh, it took me a long time to break that internal lingo from uh, yes. years of the PD. So FAST was Felony Apprehension Surveillance Team. If you, if you compare it to, like, uh, the old New York City stuff, that would have been, like, the equivalent of, like, the stakeout squad set up right. on a yeah. potential felony. Right. It, it was just a street crimes unit. Right. We would oftentimes, uh, when they needed help on uh, big surveillance, it, it uh, kind of morphed, too, over the yeah. years. When Gary was in it in the late 70s or early 80s, it was primarily anything they needed a stakeout on. Could be property crimes or anything. And by, I think I was in it in 88, and by that time, that's when cocaine was blowing up on our streets, and we actually started having street gangs we didn't know about. It morphed into this uh, uh, subunit of the special projects unit to help run warrants and, See, and uh, drug-related stuff. There again, special projects, which would, uh, you know, in the equivalency of other other agencies, would be just a narc unit, right. narcotics unit, right. narcotics, uh, vice, gambling, right, right. Intel That's, at that point was was part of the special projects group. Right. Yeah, and you you guys kind of came on the heels of some uh some really wild dramatic internal corrupt cases that were going on. 
back in the late seventies in those, in some of those units that uh, oh, yeah. I find really fascinating. Harold uh, Barons. Harold Barons, yeah. And it's, uh, it, those units have been notoriously dangerous without proper oversight, and and that's that's the problem a lot of departments ran into in the seventies is the narcotics unit used to be a separate. Uh, like in a separate place they weren't answered directly to the chief uh, yeah and they they pretty much did their own thing and and with without oversight comes abuse and as we've seen too many times i have a, I have a dear friend Ch- uh, chuck haggard that uh has done a lot of expert witness witness work in the uh private sector as a retired cop and he said you know when i get hired in for an expert witness job 90% of the time it involves some cowboy dope unit that nobody was watching. Right. So that, well, luckily with Oklahoma city, we didn't see it widespread. That's true. There was a period of time primarily in the mid to late seventies, maybe going into the early eighties where there were a handful of officers who, uh, you know, ended up taking the, the wrong path for various reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, Harold ended up dying in prison on a murder conviction. Yeah. As a that result the of guest that. Guest House Inn? The Guest House Inn uh, murders Ooh, from man. 1980. Uh, uh, Harold, uh, Harold ran a drug operation after he was terminated uh, for, for departmental uh, uh, policy violations. Um, he, he ended up running a private club and being involved in pharmaceuticals, uh, early entrepreneur, but yeah. I can see, uh, I can see a future episode, yeah, uh, driven completely out of the guest house. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. I've got a picture of your buddy, John Burks at yeah. that scene. Yeah. I've got a, I've, I've got that picture somewhere in my collection. Well, my buddy too, but yeah, <laughs> it was he's, he in he's your a family, but no, I, Johnny actually, uh, started a couple of years before I did. Johnny's uh, just over two years older than me and, and started, I want to say, in late 76, early 77. Yeah. And that murder uh, took place at the Guest House Inn, which is no longer there. It's right. been raised. but uh, It's the Class and Circle area. Yeah, Class and Circle area of Oklahoma City. Well, cool, man. That took a rabbit hole turn. Well, it's, that's kind of how these things are going to go, yeah, unfortunately. And, <laughs> and I've, I've got a feeling we, we give fair warning now that right. – uh, rabbit holes are a, a common occurrence with Kyle and I and all of the Eastridges, I believe. Yeah. Uh, because it's, as we're talking about that, I just haven't had an idea for about 20 <laughs> different episodes. Right. Well, it's a as bunch my, of stuff trapped up there. Yeah. Well, it's going to come out. As my buddy Haney McMood says, my only specialty in life is jumping into rabbit holes. So, yeah. so let's see, you both went, you were both in, uh, NARC units, both in uh, undercover work, surveillance work, and both in investigations work. Now, as I recall, you went from burglary to homicide, and you took the, the trip through, what, larceny, assaults, I and went, then uh, DV? Julie Smith uh, actually uh, helped me get promoted to detective from the uh, impact unit, which is another one of those acronym units. Yeah. So let's talk impact that when that started in 91 or 92, that was initiating multiple police actions, which 
was code for anything somebody in a patrol car would have trouble doing that morphed into a cowboy dope unit all across and right. it was recently disbanded so was it, it really yeah yeah it was it, it is what the the fast unit became uh, and the fast unit was department wide whereas right. the impact units were divisions division each each division had their own impact team Previous to that, each division would send uh, somebody on special assignment to the old uh, fast unit. Or so, I so like I to was, call them uh, temporarily, permanently assigned. Anyway. Right. <laughs> so I, I was in the Santa Fe Division Impact Unit. I had transferred down there when when my dad, when our, our father uh, ended up with some cancer and I wanted a district close by. I got talked into going over there because I was a patrol officer that knew how to type search warrants, and they do search warrants in that unit, or they did. So I ended up taking the first available seat on the bus and investigation and going to Larceny for about, I don't know, six months or so, and did what most detectives thought was crazy. They needed a a detective in the assault unit, which was known to be nothing but a workhorse unit with a huge caseload. That's the kind of stuff I wanted to investigate. I, uh, I didn't want to investigate shoplifters and stolen lawnmowers. I wanted real crime. I mean, not that those aren't real crime, but I wanted... Person's crimes. Right. Shootings and actual, bad people and... Yeah, actual victims. And then I spent about eight years in that unit and went over to homicide. But Gary and I have done real similar things, and I followed his path through uh, the police career. I mean, we you, both did a short stint in the helicopter unit, which was... And your, uh, your position in the homicide was open because I retired right. and took a contract uh, overseas. Yeah. So speaking of short rotations through the helicopter unit, you're one of like five people I know that's actually survived a quasi rough landing in a helicopter. Yeah. So Gary, I call it I call it a crash. That was personally, a crash. But it was a somewhat controlled crash. It was a uh, an emergency auto rotation. You had enough uh, time to get ignored by a dispatcher when you were I, calling I, for help I, on the way down. I did, <laughs> and uh, I think, well, anyway, we won't bring up that topic, but oh. uh, but we should. It uh, <laughs> that that's going to make a pretty good episode. That was uh, that was an interesting day to say the least. Yeah, uh, as I'm pointing out, what I think is clear ground to crash into to the pilot who's doing all he can do to control the helicopter and get it into a proper auto rotation. Jesus. What, uh, what, what, what helicopter was that? We were what in the model? old Hughes 300, and uh, we broke Piston a fuel engine. line. Yeah, broke yeah. a fuel line, which meant five of the six cylinders were running fine. One of them was not, Uh-oh. which set the whole machine into a tremendous vibration. Uh causing him to shut it down, and then right. we drop from the sky like a rock. Yeah, uh, that's briefly. What, that's what that's the way the physics of that works. Yeah, it's uh, – and, and he had pointed out to me previously that if we lose a motor, it's not going to be like an airplane. We're not going to be able to glide anywhere. Right. We're going down and pretty well straight down, so uh, help him select uh, – 
a good place to I, crash. I, I, a good, uh, yeah, impact zone. Well, we won't spoil the entire story, but I do believe my favorite <laughs> part of it is, well, they loaded the helicopter up. What are they going to do with us? Yeah. That was pretty so, uh, Anyway, I won't spoil that uh, completely, but uh, let's see. Both of you had trips through plainclothes units, homicide unit, the assault unit. What was your favorite assignment, Kyle? Kind of hard to say. I, I really enjoyed cold case. And why? Uh, okay. Most, uh, mostly I enjoyed cold case because you were working on cases that you had time to actually put thought into them. Not that you don't on others, but when you're in the active homicide unit, when you're on call, you are responsible. You and your partner are, are responsible for what comes out. That could be... Uh, two or three suicides, an officer-involved shooting, that could be a homicide, that could be a whodunit homicide versus a, you know, a domestic homicide. It's a, it's a lot more stressful and, and um, I, I guess, demanding in the regular homicide unit. So after doing that for a while, it was nice to be able to take a more research approach to a homicide case that – had gone unsolved for a long time, see if there was any new sciences involved. And that's another thing that uh, we can talk about on this show is Gary and I's career has covered uh, uh, crazy advances in technology, handguns, uh, capabilities of the law enforcement. Let me ask you both, your first trip through investigations, did you have a computer on your desk? Not at first. There it is, right? I remember carbon copies and typewriters everywhere. I had a a typewriter. I bought myself because the department didn't buy them. Uh, Each unit, I think, had Had one assigned. One uh, typewriter. Like an IBM selector. Yeah. Yeah. And I I had been an IBM selector repairman prior to starting there. That's right. Wow. A little bit of useless trivia. Right. Did you ever have to repair a department? I typewriter. Did. No kidding. I, did. I will tell you this. Nobody today will understand the frustration of typing a warrant on a typewriter with carbon paper when you've made so many corrections, the actual bottom copy is illegible. Un- right. It's yeah. just a mess. Well, that's, that's funny because I went on more than one warrant that uh, somebody typed on a computer and couldn't spell a street <laughs> right. And I went, well, that could be problematic. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, yeah, the technological advances from the time, uh, I remember you both kind of went. Cell phones. Yeah, cell phones. I mean, I remember the days of the bag phone oh, when, yeah. when both you guys bought a bag phone within a week of each other. That was, what, about 86, 87? Uh, 86 sounds right. Yeah. And it was like $600. And we're, and we're proud to have them. I was absolutely amazed. Right. That I had a phone I could take with me, albeit 35, 40 pounds of bag phone right. with a 30 foot coax wound up stuffed into a, a, a canvas case. But, but to, a little background on that, when I came out, and obviously when he came out, you kept a quarter with you because if dispatch needed you to call, you went and plugged a payphone. Now, if you called the straight line they had, you got your quarterback. 
special number that yeah. that uh, actually didn't cost anything to call. You had to have the quarter. Because that's where the, the pay phones in your district were. But this was before the 911 system as well. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. A lot well, of people have no idea that there was a time before 911 that you... you right. The police emergency line was 2312121. Still is to this day, but it's non-emergency now. Yeah. Right. Well, for Oklahoma. And then Don't and try that at home, is, folks. And and when I first came out, I like a lot of new people, you rode in the 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 rural more yeah. rural areas and I'm GPS stupid now. Without GPS, I probably I'm not going to find it. Back then, you found it as an yeah. F, as an FTO. We had to grade new officers on their ability to, to navigate to navigate through. to a location without GPS. There, yeah, there, it, it wasn't even a thought at that time. I remember so, getting calls from dispatchers and have them say. You know, you go two miles from this turn, you yeah. you go, you know, out in the boonies somewhere around Luther or something. So the day I knew that it was all over, they had installed mobile data computers, not terminals, actual computers in the police cars. And I, re- I got a call that was two blocks away from the Spring Lake briefing station, which was a joint police fire station still there to this day. And it was like, the 1400 block of 42nd or 43rd. Right. right. And I reached down and I hit show route on the GPS on the computer. And I look and the call is two and a half blocks from where I'm sitting. And I went, all hope is lost. If I ever lose right. this thing, the world's going to implode. Well, and it's, it was a double edged sword as well. Yeah. Because back then you had to find your own way, but you know what? That dispatcher didn't know where you were. That's right. true. Now the dispatcher knows where you are at any given time. Yeah, yep. and and I went. That was where the, the technology rubber hit the road for me was growing up with MDTs and learning. And most of the institutional lot knowledge for those was gone. So, you know, the old command forms and all that stuff, and then with addresses, and then getting shifted over to GPS and tracking and monitoring and integrated systems. Uh, and ultimately retirement. So, uh, but I remember you guys having those uh, suction cup notepads on the dash of your your Crown Vicks, and that was one of the first things I did as a rookie was go find one of those suction cup notepads because the mobile data terminal didn't always work. Right. Uh, I I, anyway. I carried a, a street atlas in the helicopter unit. Wow. I mean, we didn't have any fancy. Uh, and you couldn't method. read street signs no. from there. You so. had to, you had to uh, look for geological oddities. Yeah, <laughs> oddities. Well, like, well, where's a geographical anomaly? It's two weeks right. from everywhere. Two uh, weeks. So it, yeah, the technological advances and on uh, we we got to get Eric Richardson in here at some point to talk about technological advances and crime scene reconstruction and recovery. Yeah, I'm going to talk to him about that because I've worked hundreds of crime scenes with Eric, easily hundreds, and and he's got some some real interesting stuff to to share. So, Yeah, and, you, you know, you were talking about the technological advances. When I went to homicide in 1993, DNA was known of, but it was very uncommon. Exactly. 
I went through a period of time. I was in homicide from 93 to 2000. We had a, a, a period of time where we had to justify having a DNA test ran because they so were expensive. five six thousand right. $6,000 per test, which is expensive. But if you're talking about hundreds of cases, it would bankrupt a police department. Right. Yeah. Nowadays, they, 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 uh, they do DNA profiling on... Almost routinely. on scene. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I saw that a lot from the cold case perspective, looking back on cases that uh, were cold. I think the oldest one, and it wasn't DNA related, but it was APHIS related, was a murder. What's APHIS? APHIS is the fingerprint. Automated uh, fingerprint something. Nationwide. It, it, it took uh, a fingerprint tech into about a thousand years into the future. Yeah, yeah. As, it, as it existed Prior to APHIS, you had to have a person, Search a suspect, yeah. and then give it uh, classification, and you and either that. eliminated them or not. That's a good topic uh, for Eric just, to talk about, too. Yeah, just was, cold fingerprint hits were, were pretty rare. But we got an APHIS hit on a murder case that we pulled out. It's the oldest one we looked at in co-case, and we was me and Mike Burke who is still there, still investigating. Still, still doing it? Yeah. Wow. And, what is he, 70? He's, he's, he's about 90, and, 91, 92. Yeah. Like he has <laughs> dementia real bad. Yeah. Oh, God. That's but, the other uh, thing, the humor that's going to come out. Hopefully right. some people will understand some I context. I, I want to make sure he listens to this. Just yeah. so. And hopefully nobody is thin-skinned because oh, I hope they we get do offended. have a little bit of uh, – Law enforcement will bring out the dark humor in you when it's you a coping when you, mechanism, and when you deal with death on a and destruction on a daily basis, it's right. one of the ways you cope. Coping mechanism, I just called it fun, but whatever. Well, Moving on, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but then also in that group, I had one of the most intelligent people I've ever worked with was retired uh, neurosurgeon Dr. Barton Carl. Uh, rest in peace, Dart Barton Great Carl. guy, super super intelligent, uh, just a razor wit, and uh, he he himself personally contributed to solving uh, a number of uh, cold cases. We'll talk about at some point, but uh, <laughs> but that first case that we looked at was a a lady named Reuben Perkins that was murdered in her house on. Uh, Northwest 23rd around Independence. She was uh, uh, found. She was a divorcee. She was living alone, found uh, partially uh, clad in night attire and strangled. And we actually, Mike and I, pulled that old case out from 59 and found some fingerprints that they had dusted for and uh, ended up getting an APHIS hit on a bootlegger. Now, as a bootlegger from that time frame was a guy, I guess, that would sell untaxed liquor. Well, keep in, keep in mind, you said 59. It was actually, that case was 57. Was Oklahoma it? was dry until 59. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. oh, yeah, okay. Oklahoma was one of the last states to yeah. allow uh, and alcohol. I, I also remember seeing in the notes that... Um, when it was legal, women didn't go into what they call package stores to get 
Yeah, alcohol. Stores. It I wasn't just, appropriate for a woman to do that. Apparently, I just find a lot of uh, irony in that we were one of the last states that that allowed alcohol to be purchased, but one of the first medical marijuana states. Yeah, that was really and, right. Like even the Baptists figured well, out that. Uh, well, during during we'll during Kyle and I's young adulthood and into our law enforcement years. Oklahoma still had uh, liquor by the the uh, the wink they called it. Yeah, you had to buy it uh, twice. You, you had to, yeah. You a club couldn't serve you alcohol. You had to take a bottle to a club and then pay them to mix a drink from your yeah, bottle. You had to join their club. Yeah, yeah. there was all kinds of rules. That and was, that didn't go away until the uh, the mid eighties. Oh, yeah. I know. I came on in eighty five. We went to. Harrigan's, I don't know if you remember oh, Harrigan's yeah. Steakhouse. I do. And we were going to have a drink because to celebrate we graduated the academy, had to join their club. I ended up not having my license with me and and just my police credentials. And they, they said, that's, <laughs> that's not close. good enough. Oh, they I'm surprised they didn't know that's no. close enough. They were probably afraid it was a trick it's, or yeah, something. It's a trap. Uh, yeah, when I, when I was uh, – work in the northeast side of Oklahoma City, we had a lot of problems with bootlegging, but the definition of it was just untaxed liquor. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget walking into an east side club and seeing grape juice and grapefruit juice in the the soda fountains. And I said, what's the deal? We got a lot of diabetics here. Right. (laughs) You know, the premixes to the the gin. The the traditional bootlegger from going back into the – you know, the 30s and the 40s was somebody who made liquor. Like bootleggers, our great-grandfather. Like we'll, we'll get into we that. We get some family. Uh, the bootlegger of today simply goes to the liquor store and buys a case of half pints. You're giving pints. people a lot of good ideas here, yeah, too. Well, it, yeah. it is what it is, and then resells them at a time right. when liquor stores are not available. You know, yeah. in Oklahoma, liquor stores had to shut down at 9 p.m. Right. They couldn't be open on a Sunday. So if you wanted to drink after 9 or you wanted to drink on Sunday, you better know a bootlegger. So also, we've, we've been going 30 minutes. Oh, that's wow. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and I think we've covered a lot of who who you are, what you do, where you're from. Uh, a lot of ideas. A lot of ideas coming. for future podcasts, that's for sure. I, and I'll ask this to both of you. What was your favorite assignment and why? Oh, you asked me that. And, and then we went track. right off into a right. rabbit hole. That's right. okay. I I think cold case homicide was my favorite. And I, I probably would have stayed longer doing it had I not taken the plan B route I took before I got into that unit. Right. But, you know, I did do a little stint at and, OSBI. And we're not talking yeah, morning after no. birth control with Plan B. We're talking well, pension. So yeah. there's that's a common reference to a pension system that allows you to right. essentially yeah. retire and stay on the job for up to five years. And, and Kyle's service with OSBI will probably was, be a subject of a... Yeah, that was a very a, brief a, tenure. A, it was yeah. six months-ish. Yeah. Uh, there was a couple oh, and, of and cases we're, made. We're we're saying jargon again. OSBI that would be like Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Yeah. We so, opened another rabbit hole. Didn't we? There it yeah. was right there. You can't help but right hop at in. The end. Run rabbit run. Uh, so your favorite assignment and uh, and why? 
Ah, it's man, that's it's really hard because I had so much fun in patrol. It, it is hard. when yeah. you're a when you're a 21 year old kid and and you've got um, tremendous amounts of responsibility, power in some ways, right? And it's just the world can be so much fun, uh, and you know having a good partner and that sort of thing. But I would say my my favorite would be a tie between homicide and the tactical unit. I spent uh, about seven years on the tactical unit, had some extreme highs there, some extreme lows. Um, my goal from early on was homicide. I, I went there in November of 1993. The, the things that you experience as a homicide investigator are just – unimaginable to the to the uh, ordinary person on top of that you know when you did have a successful resolution and you were able to help a family uh, you know it's a high bring a little closure closure is yeah. probably is one of those overused words that in some ways is really meaningless but you made a difference Right, uh, but it also was uh, brought on some tremendous lows. You know, Absolutely. you see the worst of society, the worst of humanity, and uh, then there's always those cases that you were so close, but you were so far away, and some right. of them you were just far away. Yeah, and I, 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 I don't think the public on a lot of these unsolved cases understands that not all, but by and large, most of the people drawn to that line of work want to solve these cases more than any, anything. Are you there? Are that you wasn't okay loud now? or anything. That That's was, all right. That was a party foul. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, what is that scotch? That it's is Dalmore. That, that is a very good. 15, Dalmore 15. It's pretty right, good. While we're on the topic, I will highly recommend that. Dalmore 15. It's so, it, yeah, it, there's an overwhelming desire to solve the cases and. I, it, I commend that because there are a lot of those cases that I couldn't give a rip less about. And, and I, I well, say that from the, the perspective of a lot of what I saw was today's victim, tomorrow's suspect. We, we always yeah, called it people that worked real hard to get themselves murdered. There it is. Yeah. And, and I and saw it, an, a, an overwhelming maju- a, a load of those, but uh, yeah. the unsolved ones are the ones that bothered me because I was involved in num- a number of those, and those were typically the ones that were an innocent victim because oh, it was yeah. extremely Children. difficult to tie that right. into somebody's yeah. motive. And those are and, the ones that live with you the rest of your life too. Oh, I, yeah. And I think something that should give most listeners – uh, if we gain any listeners, I think something that will give them comfort is most people get themselves killed. Absolutely. Most homicide victims. That's absolutely and that's, true. They should have kept their no, – I, I don't mean do it necessarily to be humorous, but it is somewhat humorous. Lifestyle choices and other things, and we'll, I'm sure we'll go into depth on this, but truly innocent victims that did nothing – Julie Buskin comes to mind. Absolutely. Or, we're sitting oh, in Norman, in and of itself. Uh, just uh, what a mile or so from where her abduction took place. Correct. A truly innocent victim Correct. whose only mistake was offering a ride to the airport to to a friend uh, at a not a less than optimal hour. 
but for the most part, people that find themselves a victim do something to put themselves in uh, I, I know in that peril. Uh, what you're talking about, you could look at our murder board. We had a board. It was there when Gary was there. It was there when I was there. Still there today. It, and every his. team had the, the their victim listed. And you could look at the board and you could say, well, that was uh, illicit drugs. The illicit drug trade probably contributed more to gang activity. Gang activity comes with that. D- choices in lifestyle as far as staying with an abusive partner, right. or staying with a partner or, that's or, involved in risky behaviors. Or, uh, you know, and not to get on a real touchy subject, but those abusive partners are a lot of times a trend for people. They'll go from one abusive partner to another until ultimately they're killed. And it's tragic, but, you know, also probably avoidable. But I'm talking uh, also, you know, children were obviously the cases that were obvious victims. Then you had the convenience store clerks. I got taxi drivers. Oh, yeah. I I I subscribed. I subscribe to this theory, and I, I don't know who coined the phrase first, but I think it was John Farnham. You know, people would ask me, what's the best thing I can do to, you know, avoid being a victim of violent crime? And it's don't do stupid shit in stupid places with stupid people. Oh, absolutely. If you subscribe to those three, you're probably going to get through life okay. You're going to limit your risk tremendously. I got I got complained on in patrol when I responded to a you told them, you remember those convenience stores, yeah. you told them? And the clerk had been robbed, and it was a young girl, and I and she was terrified. And she said that uh, she didn't know what to do if she would come back or not and didn't think it, it should affect her. And I told her her job was far more dangerous than mine was, and it shocked her. And I said, I I have backup and I have a gun. I have a contingency for bad people. You're here facing the same bad people with nothing. Yeah. And she quit and her boss called in and complained on me, but but she's alive. But today. she's alive today, I bet. As far as we know. Well, that's uh you know, after all the years of she police went straight work straight into whoring. <laughs> and there Get comes it. the humor. <laughs> Yeah, we could edit that one out. Or not. Uh, it no, just depends. After all the years of police work looking at uh, victims of violent crime, um, there were very few random victims, right? There were that, that was a small minority of the overall picture of, of what it was like to be a cop. Uh, matter of fact, many, my mother of all people, she calls me and she goes, how do they always have a picture of the homicide victims where they're posed just perfectly, and I said, "Oh, that's her mugshot." It's a mugshot, right? Oh, what do you mean that's, it's her mugshot? I mean, I mean that's a criminal that got killed, or someone with a criminal past that got killed. And uh, I'm sorry, but they weren't out collecting for the Red Cross at the time of their murder. Usually, but, if they've cropped that photo out of a family photo or a or a, or a, a glamour shot or something of the victim, <laughs> then it's it's probably a legitimate victim. It's I probably. I shared one with you the other day that they used on his, uh, I won't say the name of the mortuary, but a very famous Southside mortuary that did a lot of charity work. 
they used the mugshot from when I had arrested the guy as his memorial photo. Oh yeah, I know and, who you're talking about. Yeah, boy, that's a that's had an a oddly topic. Irish name, but for anyway, that's a notorious family of thugs. <laughs> we we'll have to get into them at some point. Yeah, well, I guess we, we may have to consult with a legal team to find <laughs> out. <laughs> Hey, uh, what our liability I is. I know a couple of them, yeah, though, that are yeah, reformed. We, we could probably get them in here and talk I to them. I could get Tamar Shawara to sit over there next to you and hit the just, pause button. We've got a Tamar alert. Yeah. <laughs> Tamar has said no use of the last name. Right. I think they call that the surname in some countries. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've heard. Yeah. Well, fellas, any final thoughts? I always, no, it, on my personal podcast, I give people a final thought, and that's usually like 30 seconds of XYZ. This could be 30 to 45 minutes. So go ahead, Kyle. What do you got? I, I think I like where it's going. We've kind of covered the ground of what we're going to uh, get into. That's, I mean, if anybody had suggestions, those that know how to contact us, let us know. If you're interested in a topic, from our time frame in law enforcement, that's 70s to, you know, what year is it? Well, this is 2023, oh, currently. I checked, and well, really, 70s to 2023. Brian just right. retired this oh, year. Right. So we're looking at uh, at 44 years. 44 years Changes. of an Eastridge in law enforcement in the Oklahoma City metro right. area. March 31st, there was a, a, an overwhelming, like, sigh of relief and applause when my packet hit when the, the last floor. last Eastridge was gone. They're like, hey, they're all gone. Don't hire any more of them. I'm sure they had a count on the wall at some point. We've got two left. we got one left. Yeah, there was. But uh, combined between the four of us, I figured it up today. There's 91 total years of law enforcement amongst four people. That's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. And also, one thing that we haven't mentioned, uh, Kyle, explain what EI is. EI is after I left law enforcement, I started my own PI firm. And uh, I really wanted to bring some professionalism to that, that industry. And so I've, I've built it from some of the most well-known uh, forensic expert and experienced investigators that I know. And uh, and we've we've been doing this for thirteen, going on fourteen years now. So, and I've got a side business, RNG Firearms. My good friend Roger Wagner, uh, letter R A N D G Firearms dot net. Uh, check us out there. We're co-sponsor of this. And Brian, you've got your own podcast. You might as well plug it. Oh yeah. Well, I've got the off-duty, on-duty podcast currently. I have a uh, Patreon page, Eastridge Training and Consulting. I do contract firearms training and firearms industry consulting all over the country for major manufacturers. There's another hat in there somewhere that I do. Your belt. Oh, yeah, yeah. EDC Belt Belt Company. Company. I got EDC Belt Company. Do uh, the foundation belt. All those got websites. We'll plug all the links in the uh, show notes. And uh, stay tuned. There's more episodes upcoming. Again, I, I said it in the pre-show. I'll say it in the post-show. Subscribe on a- Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Blueberry, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Uh, we're on that network now. All right. Stay tuned for next week's episode. 
guys have a good one.